Hello and welcome to another episode of Fully Booked, the Hidden Gems author podcast in which Craig Touch and myself, Roland Hume, discuss the very challenging, interesting, rewarding world of self-publishing by talking to some of the, the figures we've met in this business who have some really insightful things to say about it. Today, we are very excited to have a special guest called Peter Gelfin, who has written a really, really interesting book on editing called Hurling Words into Darkness. And he's here to discuss editing and the importance of thinking like a writer. So good morning, Peter. How are you doing? Good morning. Just fine. It's very nice to have you. Thank you very much for joining us. And of course, we wouldn't be here without the man himself, Craig Touch, the owner and founder of Hidden Gems and an author himself. How are you doing today, Craig? I'm doing good. Um, so yeah, Peter, we were uh, interested to talk to you because uh, your book, it's um, it's different, I think, than a lot of other writing books out there. You have a different sort of look at how, as an editor, somebody who's been an editor for so long, and I know that you tutor uh, writers as well. Um, and I guess you have sort of a different way of, you think that writers should, you know, sort of think about writing, right? And that's kind of what uh, your book is about. Is that right? Well, yes. It's not just to think about it. I'm sure most writers do think a lot about writing, but to think about it in a different way. Um, and that we tend to think about writing that it's, that it's a craft or it's an art. And we tend to think of people reading a novel or going to a play or going to a movie, watching television, whatever it is. It's entertainment or maybe it's maybe it's cultural elevation or something like that. <clears throat> and I think it misses the point entirely of of why we write and why we read. Why we read <clears throat> is what spawns why we write. If nobody was reading, nobody would be writing, obviously. So um, I think we have, have missed the, the, real, the real reason that humans are so addicted to storytelling and story listening. Um, and, that's, and, and, and I try to bring that out in this book and then apply it to how one might be able to improve their writing um, by taking this into account. It's not a whole bunch of new rules for this, that, and the other thing. It's just, you know, look at it in this other way, um, as well as the way you're currently looking at it. And a lot of things fall into place, and your, 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 um, your writing will be better and more effective. Hmm. That's interesting. So how, how is it that, that people think about storytelling, and, and what is it that we should be taking into account? Okay, um, what we should be taking to, into account is is why we read in the first place, and um, to think about uh, the reason we we read is because um, we want to be entertained. Is to like is to say that the reason we eat is because we love the taste of food. There's something more basic to that, and um, just about any any creature has to learn from its own experiences. And there's some creatures who can, can learn from watching what happens to others of their kind. If the, if the monkey sees the leopard grab his brother down there near the river, he's not going to go down near the river because he's learned from his brother's experience not to go down to the river. Um, and that's about as far as it goes. But with humans, we can tell our brother, don't go down to the river because there's, there's leopards down there. 
and um, and and I, we're about the only ones who can do that to teach their children. Don't go down to the river because there are le- leopards down there. So this is this is our special skill. Human beings, we know we're, we're puny, we're vulnerable, we are we're slow, we're weak, we're pretty stupid about a lot of things. We don't have much hair to protect us. We don't have big claws and big teeth and all that kind of stuff. So why is it that we seem to be dominating this whole planet? And and um, the reason is because we can learn from each other in a secondhand way. And so when you when you are reading a story, you are actually absorbing survival experience uh, without having to have been there um, and and risked it. Like we read war stories so that we can experience war without experience war, and um, and and that's really what it's about. That, um, why we read is to learn things that we can use, and. Going back to food, we eat food because we like it, yes, but <laughs> we get energy and, and, and materials to heal and grow our bodies from eating. And we're learning survival skills from, from reading, but we read it because it's fun to read. This is great. This is exciting. What and, and that's what I think. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, what a fascinating perspective, because you think storytelling is one of the oldest human traditions. We gathered around a campfire and told that's stories. Right. Exactly. And you... You read the Torah and uh, the uh, Quran, and a lot of it is almost like a not so much about religion, but it's almost like a guide to how to live. You know, don't eat the bottom feeders of the sea because the red uh, the Nile used to have lots of bacteria in it, so it's a bad idea to eat the shrimp there. And so much of these stories have important lessons in and d- date back almost before the written word. Yes. Um. What 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 scientists have also discovered. There's now actually a science of the mind. Uh, there wasn't with, with, with Freud and all that kind of stuff back then. It wasn't science. If somebody came up with a philosophical theory about we have little ids and egos in our heads, you know, we do this, that, and the other thing. No, we have a brain in there. And so scientists have done a lot of brain research with new, you know, with this uh, fMRI imaging. You can see what the brain is doing while the person is thinking or, or speaking or whatever it is. And they've discovered that the way we, we think about life, the way we analyze life, the way we remember things um, is through stories. It's not data. It's, we turn everything into a story um, that, that, that we wanted this and, or somebody wanted this and they tried that and it didn't work and they got all screwed up and then that happened and that happened. And that's how we remember things. And we remember how it happened, happened, things happened to us. And we can have a story. This happened to us in a story. If you actually go back and look at what actually happened, it was much more complicated than that. But it's a handy it's a handy way to remember what happened is to is to store it as a story. And that's that's what we do. And so when we read a story and empathize with that story and empathize with the characters, we're we're learning their experience without having to, you know, to go to go to outer space and have our tether removed from the <laughs> Absolutely. That's so fascinating. Um, I was just thinking of uh, advertising. I got my start in advertising and, you know, I used to write adverts and used to write mini stories because stories were what you could get people to be immersed in the story. You could almost sell them on the product. Like Budweiser does these amazing adverts every year where they put the 
shy what is it the huge Clydesdale horses and the little puppies and you end up with tears rolling down your cheeks and you buy Budweiser even though it tastes like garbage and it's because the storytelling is such an important part of it right exactly and if if if, if writers can can look at their writing as you're get, you're giving someone an experience and I, I think a lot of writers are are more concerned with what they're getting out of it. It's like, oh, I'm I'm expressing myself. I am I'm being artistic. I'm being, you know, um, your readers don't care about you unless you're big and famous. You know, your readers don't care about you. They care about your characters. They don't know you. They, they don't care whether you're going to get rich off this book or not. Uh, or, or whether you have wonderful prose rhythms or something, um, they they want they want a good story, uh, well told, and I think a lot of writers miss this. And so there's uh, writers tend to unsuccessful writers, but they tend to um, try to be part of the show themselves without thinking what the, what the readers want. And readers just want a wonderful story with wonderful characters that's going to wrap them up in another life, in another experience. And so all the stuff writers do to, to, to get the attention of their readers is actually d- distracting from what they are trying to do. They're making readers... Think about what oh, oh this guy's funny oh this guy's a funny way of and it's even even things like you know putting it italics and caps and all you know making your 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 writing itself look kind of distracting it's, it's, it's distracting people from the story and and um, good writing just makes a very vivid story that people can just go into. And, and and inhabit that story and experience that story without bells and whistles to prove that, hey, I'm the writer. Look at me. I find that I find that kind of an interesting thing because one of the situations we end up, uh, Craig and I end up with a lot, and I experienced it myself as a as a writer, is you finish your book and then you're like, okay, how am I going to get people to read this? And you're right, it's almost like you should think. What am I going to write that people will want to read or my or how am I going to put it together in a way that people will want to read it? It's not the reader's obligation to learn to like an author's book, is it? No, it isn't at all. They, they, they owe you nothing, right? especially if they pay for the book. They owe you nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of advertising and marketing is more about getting those people to to discover your book in the first place. And then right. of course it's the writing that's going to take them forward. Right. I, I'm thinking about um, the fact I like, I, I just started reading a lot of the Lee child, Jack Reacher books. Right. Uh, and that's one of these things where I know about the author. I've, I watched the show on Amazon and uh, I've heard about him for many years and I never actually read his books. And I finally decided, Hey, I'm going to just sit down and start reading them. And um, you know, it's, it's, a similar sort of experience that I'm having with them is um, just on the second one now, but he really, it, it really draws you in. He creates a, a lot of like the world. There's no fanciness to it. You know, it's just, he's created a world that really, really draws you in. I don't know anything about 
a lot of the stuff he's talking about, a lot of it like military stuff. I'm in Canada, you know, we're not uh, as, as sort of knowledgeable about a lot of the military and the guns and all this, you know, and he's talking about it all. And, and it, it really paints a vivid picture that um, and he does it in a, in a, in a good way because I don't feel like, you know, he's explaining it and making it boring and telling me about the difference between a Glock and an M16 and a, this and that, right? Like I just, he's just telling the story and it's, it's pulling me in and I care about the character and I want to read more and, and uh, yeah, there's nothing fancy and it's a well done sort of thing. And it's teaching me. It's like, I'm learning about things that I never had any knowledge about before. So yeah, I can totally see that might one day be useful to you, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know, might go to war. <laughs> well, I, actually, you say that. I remember Lee Child books. There are like odd little things, like the re, like when you're wandering through in the dark trying to sneak up on somebody, you keep one eye shut, and that's so if the light suddenly burst on, you're going to be completely blinded. And if they go off again, you'd have no night sight. But then you open up the eye that you had closed, and you can see in the dark. And it's like that's a stupid thing you read in a book. Right. you actually remember and, and yeah. when i'm wandering around the house going to the bathroom in the middle of the night i always keep one eye closed in case of my kids switch on the lights suddenly it's like what's going on yeah there it's we go. true i've learned tons of little things like that in these books uh i mean again things that i might never use a lot of them you know i think the one i'm reading now is talking about this how the centuries were doing it wrong they you know they were just standing around and then somebody comes and kills one and the other ones don't know about it but they're supposed to go in their circle pattern so that when they're walking and if one does get killed, the other ones will find their body right away because they're, they're doing their back and forth century, you know? And so I was like, man, I just, I never really thought about, uh, you know, the best way to be a century. <laughs> like I had no idea there was a good way or a bad way, you know, it's, it's, it's true. It's teaching us. And I agree. Like, uh, it's something I've said to my my uh, my son a lot is uh, he reads a lot and I'm like I've said to him in the past like that is how that's that's what has made people dominate this planet is our ability to pass on information. I don't have to relearn every single thing that everyone else has learned just to get to be able to do what I need to do. I don't have to know how to build a car first before I can drive because I can buy a car because someone else did it and i don't have to learn how to drive on my own because someone can teach me how to drive i can read the book on how to drive i can pass that information whether it's verbally or which you know animals can't do either passing it on verbally or through through reading the manual uh you know i i don't have to know how to to do anything that i don't want to know how to do that i want to have to learn how to do myself because someone else has already done it and then i can take that as a building block and go from there and i don't everyone doesn't have to start from zero all the time and that's right. that's why we're able to have cities and internet Absolutely. and tvs and all the things that my son likes <laughs> so i try to put that in perspective for him you know yes and if it's a well-told story you'll get emotionally involved so these things will stick um better uh, I think that's that's where the storytelling really comes in. Yes. That's the difference. So an instruction manual doesn't make you feel any emotion apart from maybe frustration, whereas a story can make you feel an emotion and, and you can get completely swept up in it. And I mean, the number of books I've finished where I had tears running down my eyes and stuff like that, that doesn't that doesn't happen when you are doing a community college course unless there are right. tears of frustration. Whereas when you read a book, it can get into your heart. And at that point, what whatever made you feel that way sticks in your brain. Right. And that's the whole point of it, of, of, of what I'm trying to say, is that if you tell a good story, 
people will pay attention to it. They'll get entirely involved in it. Their whole brain will be working at this thing. And that way they, they, they can learn something. <clears throat> Whereas yeah. if you just tell them, and a lot, this is another thing, a lot of, a lot of, of, of writers, one of the biggest mistakes you can do in, in writing a novel is to tell the reader what it means. Or, or start it off by saying, well, you know, this is about how, you know, if you're not honest, you're, you're going to get into big trouble. And you've just short-circuited what you're trying to do. Yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting. That's also oh, go ahead, Kurt. That's also the trickiest part sometimes too, right? It's like, how much do I need to tell the reader? And readers come with all sorts of different levels of comprehension and this and that, right? How much do I need to tell the reader so that my point gets across without me beating them over the head with my point, right? Right, and 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 the spy novels have have a can teach you how the correct way to approach this with with their need to know thing. You know, it's right. it's all need to know with your exposition. You know, don't tell them anything unless you absolutely have to, and don't tell them anything except the smallest amount that you need to tell them, and don't tell them until the <laughs> you must tell them. Don't tell them in advance. Um, it's it's kind of need to know for the novelist. Now you mentioned earlier that uh, writing, you know, you some people think of it. I think of it as a craft. I don't, definitely don't think of it as an art. But when it comes to like storytelling, how much sort of uh, structure do you do you value? Because I I know I've written thirty books and I didn't get into story structure until like book fifteen, and I managed to blag my way through half of it because I think as human beings we intrinsically know vaguely what a story should be. You know, it's yes. Um, but then when you start to actually study it, you read like Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey and uh, Dan Harmon's The Story Circle, you see that it is, there's almost a science to what makes an effective story. How much uh, value do you put into that? I I put some value into it. I, I do think that you need enough structure that you're going to, you're going to create, that you're going to end up creating a story. Um, and And usually that has to do with, you know, there's an important problem that that you have to solve, and you don't know how to do it. And you try this and that, and then you know, I mean, the first one can't work because then that's then your novel turns into a very short story. Um, and um, so, I think that is true as to all these various systems. Um, I don't think you necessarily need need that. You know, is 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 the is the heroes journey going to fit this story and it may not or you may try to you think well you could we can do it this way or that way but i don't think you need to think about it that way i think you do need to think about uh, a good story having having an important problem that needs to be solved that your main character has to solve and that your readers are going to get involved in so I think in your book you call that you know predicament and attempted attempted extrication. Yes, that's that's actually um, uh, Gottschalk's definition. That I thought was very handy. Um, uh, I, well, can you talk a bit more about that? About uh, sort of break that down a little bit. Well, well, sh- well, sure. Um, you have to have a character in your story, and then that character is going to get into some kind of a predicament, an important. Um, problem or situation that they need to deal with, 
And the rest of the book is the the uh, the attempt at extrication. Sometimes they don't do it. Sometimes they fail. It's a tragedy. Um, sometimes they succeed. Sometimes it gets turned around on its head and turns into something else. Um, but you need a character, and you need something that they have to worry about or do something about. And then um, that's what the story is, how they solve this problem. Now, not all novels are like that. There are novels that, that, don't, that don't have that particular um, structure that are more... Um, and they're usually considered the avant-garde ones, you know, the, <laughs> the weird writers. And, and they have something else. Each of those stories has something else that is, is keeping the readers with them. Um, maybe it's beautiful writing, poetic writing, or something like that. But it, it, it doesn't necessarily have that, that plot. And if you want to write a, a book without a plot, um, but has wonderful writing and beautiful ideas or something like that, that, that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But, but just um, keep in mind that you, are, that you are choosing not to use perhaps the most powerful tool in storytelling, which is the you know, character predicament, uh, attempted extrication, as Gottschalk puts it. Um, so you have to make up for it with something else. And, um, uh, and there are examples of that. There are stories that are hysterically funny. They have no plot. The characters are unbelievable. You know, it's ridiculous. But you're laughing your ass off. And... That's very valuable to people. See, I mean, Seinfeld. Seinfeld's a great example of that, isn't it? Well, they always have a predicament, but it's also funny. There's, yeah. There's usually two or three predicaments. Each character has something, some horrible angst going on. <laughs> yeah. And they, it's, it's, and they almost never solve it. And it's that's hard. I think it's hard to, to write something without any sort of predicament, any sort of conflict, any sort of, you know, I, I, I can't even personally think about any examples where there is not. I mean, it almost sounds like you're writing a, a book on philosophy at that point, not really a novel, right? Well, it could have, it could have a sequence of events that, that doesn't have a particular problem or it could just be, you know, these slice of life novels where they just narrate the day in the life of someone, but there isn't a problem there. It's just, or it's, um, there are avant-garde, so-called avant-garde novels like that. And people like them because, because it makes them very intellectual, because there are interesting ideas, that the writing is good. There might be some humor in it. There might be some char- characters that you've never met before, people that you've never seen their like before. And that's all worthwhile. But you don't have this. What you don't get is the, the learning experience that going through a character's ordeal will give you. So I, I think know. people I think people should should write whatever they want to write, but keep in mind that you know these th- this is this is what is the usual payoff of, of a story. And if you're going to ignore that, be aware that you are ignoring it and, and make up for it. Because I guess you could say like a book that is non-traditional like Jack Kerouac or uh, on the road or something that that isn't it might be a book that's important to literature but it's not going to sell as many copies as you know harry potter or something like that because the story and the characters and the predicaments tend to make books more 
I would say, more compelling to people to read in the first place. Yes, but I, 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 I also I, I should probably clarify that I don't mean that every every novel needs to be a thriller um, at all. And and um, Kerouac's On the Road, it, there's there are implied problems in it. They're looking for the meaning of life or something like that, and um, and things happen. And so I'm not saying it has to be very plot forward that it, it has to be a thriller type thing uh, or, or mystery or, or something like that. But there has to be a conflict that the characters are trying to, to work through. Um, yeah. And that conflict be, could be an internal conflict, right? It could absolutely. be character change. It could be, you know, they're going through some. Absolutely. Kind of, and often yeah. with, with, with the better novels, you've got both going, you've got an external conflict that needs to be solved, but to solve it, you have to solve an internal conflict. There's, there's right. the character conflict going on as well as the external conflict. And then there's yeah, the, often. the conflict between characters. You could have two guys trying to accomplish something that's the same thing, but they hate each other and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And then by the end, you know, they've changed and been able to see each other's perspective. And now they, you know, they're different, better people and they've changed themselves as well as changed their external circumstances too. Yeah. Right. And of course, for us as the reader, that's the lesson. The lesson is sometimes you have to see things from other people's perspectives and find compromise or find a middle ground or something. So I guess, yeah, it always teaches you something. It always teaches you. Even if you can't put it into exact words, I think it teaches you something. In, in many novels, it's, it's hard to boil it down to a one sentence description of what happens in the novel. And But there is conflict and there is problem and there are and there are good and bad outcomes, and and that it settles in somehow without necessarily having what's sometimes called the elevator pitch, which is, you know, the, if you have to explain to somebody in an elevator, like this, this producer in the elevator that's going up five floors with you, you've got to give them give them the gist of your story in a, in, I, in, I, in, a, in a very quick pitch. Not not all novel. You can't do that with all novels. No, I mean, that's like the blurb. I spend a lot of time writing blurbs for, yeah. for other authors and it can be really challenging when you're oh. like, okay, what is the crux of the story? I, I think authors themselves, it's very difficult for them to write blurbs for their own books because oh, often they're too close to the material. The blurb Whereas, is harder than the novel. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. A great piece of advice like, I've never followed is write the blurb first and then write the novel, but I've never done that. Yeah. Then you're sort of like handcuffing yourself to to sticking to that, right? But I'm thinking, you know, I I don't remember the details. I have notoriously bad memory. But one feeling that stuck with me when I read um, Robert Jordan's uh, Wheel of Time series, which, you know, is uh, he he ended up passing away before he even finished the series. It was something like 13 books and Sanderson took it over at the end. Uh, And I remember when I started reading it 20 years ago or whatever it was. I really got the feeling in the first three books that it was a a supposed to be a three book series. And then I had that feeling halfway through the third book that he realized he could just keep writing these books and sort of everything changed. Like it, it felt like, I mean, again, this is like really the way I feel more about maybe it's not totally true if I reread them now, but the, the feeling I came away from it was, you know, there was this big conflict 
and this big thing building, building, building. And then in the halfway through the third book, it was like, but that's not the real conflict. The real conflict is still to come. And then I was like, really? But anyways, I kept reading because I'm a completionist. And so, but I remember there was one book deep into the series, like, I don't know, book eight or nine, who knows, where I read that book and it was not a short book. You know, they were all very long books. And I came away from that book thinking, nothing happened in this book at all. <laughs> like <laughs> everything, you, you could just drop this book. Like nobody moved forward, nothing, not, the plot didn't change. And that, that, that to me is almost uh, where there was no, there was no, <laughs> there was no journey. There was no conflict. There was maybe little conflicts throughout, but, but at the end of the day, nothing really changed. Um, and <laughs> so you almost, it, maybe it's almost easier to do that in a series where you have this overarching plot and conflict, but you know, you can write a book where it's really just exposition and people just wandering and continuing on their paths. I wouldn't recommend it, but uh, I can almost see how that would be easier to sell than a standalone book where nothing happens because there's no reason people aren't invested in it. Right. I was invested at that point. So probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter, what are some of the books that have really like made an impact in your life in this way? Well, I think the first first book that really had that kind of an impact on me was um, was Catch Twenty Two. I was oh, yeah. I was a young teen when it came out, and the only long books that could be considered for adults that I'd read were those who were that were assigned in school. And normally, I you know I didn't I didn't find a very interesting Silas Marner and stuff. I you know I did. It never connected with me. And then with Catch-22, um, I was reading it, and it was it was a tragedy, and it was a comedy. It was a hysterically funny tragedy. And um, it just made me see that writing could be creative. It's not just something that your English teacher makes you read. And um, that book had a, a, an impression. I mean that book. That book has such a strong lesson in it as well. It's and it's it's got many. The, yeah, the term "catch twenty two now you yes. know refers to the express. It's it's so odd. So many people I know say the term "it were in a catch twenty two situation," and then when you talk to them about it, some of them don't even realize it was a book, and it was the book that came up with this you know impossible to win scenario. Right, right. I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, he, he the the the. the the thing was named after the book. It wasn't that the book was named after the thing that was already there. So it was. It was about a pilot who wanted to get out of war service because he said you have to be com- like completely crazy to to be able to do this. He tried to claim insanity to get out of fighting a, of flying these dangerous missions, and the the army was like, "Well, if you know that you want to claim insanity to get out of flying these missions, that proves you're sane." Right. And it's kind of like this this <laughs> loop that gets stuck in there, which I think any of us who gets involved in bureaucracy, you know, going down to the DMV to to register your car, you see all these catch twenty two situations, and it's yeah, there's a le- there is definitely a lesson there, and it's become part of the cultural idiom, right? And um, other books, um, my my sister, to the horror of my parents. Gave me one of Henry Miller's book for a birthday present. Once. Oh, and cancer. of course it was very lurid and, and and full of sex, but it was also, you know, this is a guy who could write passionately, 
about just things that were happening to him. And it struck me that you, you just, and it's almost plotless, a lot of his, a lot of his books. It's just, this is what happened. This is what happened. And it's all very interesting. And he can tell it with such uh, passion um, and insight that it's, um, that's again struck me the, the power of reading. Even if even even if you took the sex out, it would be very very interesting and and, and readable. But would it be as popular? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, do you have sort of any advice or techniques that you that you give authors to to make sure that they're you know doing yes, well, right? There's a lot. There's a lot of them in in the in the book, and um, to try to be. How this book came about, and I'll try to be brief here, is that I'm editing for years and years and years. And I, when I first started, you know, I'd have to sort of explain what a plot was to somebody, and then um, I would write it off and send it off to them. And then um, maybe two months later, I'd get another book to edit, and well, this guy doesn't understand plot, so I'd have to type up what a, about a plot. And there was many of these things like that that I realized I was repeating. So I thought, I got lazy, and I thought, instead of repeating them, I'm just going to, when I think I've really explained something well, I'm going to copy it and put it in this boilerplate file that I have over here. And so I did that for years and years and years and years. I thought, oh, this is a good way to explain character. This is a good way to explain why dialogue should be this or that. And I ended up with almost 100 pages of this thing. And a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I thought, I'm getting on, and I'm not going to be editing forever. I'm going to get senile and I'm going to die. And there's a lot of stuff that I've written here that I think is very useful and very useful to a lot of authors that I've never seen in other books about writing. And I'd, I'd read other books about writing just to make sure I wasn't missing something and pick up a few tips. And so I thought I should, I should just take these and, you know, somehow preserve what I have learned that isn't somewhere else. And so then I tried to organize these things. And as I organized them, I, I realized that there's something, it's not just the organizing principle. There is something was coming slowly into shape about what putting these together. And then I, you know, put, put, that, put, put this section here. And it, it, it finally occurred to me what was going on, which was in, in, one of the things being that, that that when you're writing, you have to be careful not to distract readers. A lot of the things that it's considered bad writing, you're distracting readers and from the story. And and as I said earlier, some writers like to distract readers from the stories, so the readers will think about them. Um, and that, that works against you. So then I put that together with, um, a lot I'd been reading about um, about brain science, and then it, it all then it all fell into place. This is what is happening. This is why we read stories, and this is how writers are preventing their readers from experiencing the story they're telling. And so, most of the things that I go over is in detail have to do with things that distract readers. Um, while, while while you're writing, just keep them in the story. Keep your your own nose out of the story. But there's a lot of things that that, that 
that that that writers do habitually that are distracted and are considered part of writing. Now, obviously, you don't want to give away all of the details in the book. Could you give us some examples of things that the writers do that are distracting? Okay, sure. Um, let's say you're let's take dialogue. Let's say you're doing a passage of dialogue. Two two characters are having an argument. Say, and what you want, what you what I'm saying that you want is you just want the reader sitting there in that room watching that argument. It's just the two characters arguing, and the reader the fly on the wall. And um, but then you can say you can just have the lines of dialogue and and in very minimalistic ways make sure the readers know who is speaking the line of dialogue or you can say uh george said heartily and smiled and 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 uh and susan said because she really wanted him to understand what she was saying it's the writer butting in to to interpret the story for the readers if the story if your story needs interpreting then write the story better I think that's brilliant. It's funny. I wrote a, a blog post for Hidden Gems recently about Jane Austen and Ernest Hemingway and their use of dialogue and why their books are so timeless. Because Jane, it's the attribution. I think that's the cardinal sin of so many new writers. So they have to say, you know, uh, I'd like a cup of tea. He said with a smile. Yeah. Certainly, she poured the cup of tea and smiled at him with a wink or something. Here is your cup of tea. Oh, this cup of tea is delicious. He said pleasantly, and and those things that he said pleasantly, she did this. It's like if you cut them all out. Ernest Hemingway had this wonderful way of just one line of dialogue, one line of dialogue, one line of dialogue, and then if he had to, he put in a, a he said as an attribution, just so your brain like caught up with the back and forth. But apart from that, you didn't have anything except your dialogue. And even right. Jane Jane Austen two hundred years ago did that. And that's, I think, why her books remain so timeless, because they were written in that way that, as you said, didn't distract people. I think it's fantastic advice. I, I, I cover in the book a little bit the, the history of writing novels and going right back to, you know, Cervantes and, 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 and things like that. And, and the history of writing novels is to have the, the author be less and less present. But back then, they would say things, dear reader, I'm about to tell you about something that really breaks my heart, but I think you need to know about it, so forgive me if I cause you any pain. And then goes through the incident. That's and... pretty much the opening of every Shakespeare play, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but then you see, when you watch the play, when you read it, yes, but when you watch it, it's just the actors on the stage. And yeah. no one is, is sitting there saying why he said that. or, or and, and the actor figures out, am I smiling? Am I frowning? Am I angry? The actor figures that out. But doesn't tell the audience. They just act it. So it's part of the scene. You're in the scene and you see it. And that's, that's what... There's a big difference between saying that... Um, that someone... That, that he sees, so, someone says something angrily. As opposed to saying he he he's you know he, he gave her a dirty look, or he tightened his. And then he says the line dialogue. Now it's in the scene. Now it's in the scene. His, his manner. What did he? What was his action? As opposed to the author explaining. Oh, now he's really angry, so he stops his foot. At, no. So yes, and you come up right, you know, further and further into the present time, and there's there's the the author's no longer on the stage. And I think that makes for a lot more of an enjoyable reading experience and a memorable reading yes, experience. That's 
that's that was exactly my point. You've got a better experience there. You're not listening to some guy relating something. You are there in it, watching it. Right. It's like the show don't tell, right? You you know, if you're writing it well, the readers will be able to to figure out if he's angry. You right. don't need to say he said it angrily. They'll right. be able, they'll know. And you don't have to make it too easy for them because if you make it too easy for them, you're not making them think. Yeah. That's, that's another thing that I think the uh, mistake that authors, they explain so much to the reader that the reader doesn't have to put two and two together. And if the reader isn't putting two and two together, they're losing most of the, the fun and benefit of reading the book. So Lee Child, we spoke about earlier, I think he has, yeah. he has a very economical use of language. And I think one of the most satisfying things, he has very short chapters. They're almost like potato chips. You can't stop just one. But each chapter, you learn something new and it makes you feel smart and it makes you think and it makes you start putting the things together. And that's an incredibly satisfying reading experience. Yes. And it also exercises, literally exercises your brain. So if, if you learn to read people in novels, you will get better at reading people in real life. And boy, do we need to read people in real life. I mean, that is probably the important skill that, that, that a human being has is to figure out what these other guys are up to. Um, yeah. Because, absolutely. I mean, everything else is taken care of. You know? <laughs> it's the air and especially in, I mean, America is so divisive right now almost because of that. You know, there's half of the country hates the other half of the country and there's no empathy between them. And then stories like this, Stories could possibly be a way to bridge that gap if you can see an opinion from somebody else's perspective. Yep. I'm optimistic and I like to think humans aren't all bad people. So, you know, you could have two completely diametrically opposed people, but there's probably something you like about them. I mean, even Hitler was nice to dogs. <laughs> as long as they weren't Jewish dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we are almost coming up to the end of our time together. But Peter, where can people find this book? Um, th- there's an earlier edition of this book out that you can get paperback only on Amazon. This book is the second uh, edition, which is probably maybe is 10% different from the other one or has more stuff than the other one. Uh, and that's going to be. It's going to have a better cover, and it's going to also have a digital version, and that will be coming out um, end of September. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure to to drop a link down to um, where that is. You have a website. I have a website, but it's also um, um, I, I think I'll let Jane figure out this kind of you know Jane Jane Ryder. <laughs> Figure out yeah. what's the best strategy for 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 where to where to direct people, um, and we'll make sure it's down below in the description of this video. But yeah. Peter, before we go, like, do you have any parting advice? If there are aspiring writers who are listening to this, what's the one thing that we haven't covered that you would you would tell them to stick in the old noggin and let it rattle around? That you're giving readers an experience that you want them to experience it on their own, and don't copycat. That's interesting. Don't try to write like, don't try to be, don't try to do the next Harry Potter. Do your own thing. Do do your own thing in a way that's going to be useful to readers. And Craig, do you have any additional questions? 
no, I think it's you know it's fa- it's a fascinating discussion. I think we we really you know like you said, I remember the the article you wrote about the sort of dialogue. You have to write it economically, right? You want to make sure that uh, people can follow it, but you don't want to add in too much to be to be both distracting or to you know be always telling them what they should be thinking and how they should be understanding. And, and I think that that applies, like you said, to so many other parts of, of writing um, and not just dialogue. So it's definitely something that I think a lot of, I agree, a lot of writers um, could benefit from, from doing a better job at. So I think reading your book might be the best way that they can do that. So we'll definitely, uh, you know, we'll, this episode will probably come out around when your book drops. And so we will definitely have a link to it. Um, down below. Right. That is wonderful. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us. This has been a really fascinating discussion. I kind of like it because it's different to a lot of the other discussions we've spoken about, but they, they all have their interconnecting things. We just spoke to Melinda, who wrote a book about character, and then you spoke about how important character is. And it's 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 great to learn all of these different things from different people and put them together and get new perspectives. And it's, you know, we've sat here, you told us the story of how you wrote your book and there you are telling us a story that, <laughs> that puts it in our brain a, a little better. So Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Um, are we are gonna wrap, well, we are going to wrap this up now. They'll be back next week with another episode of Fully Booked. But until then, make sure if you like what Peter had to say, drop a comment down below. If you haven't already, subscribe, whether you're listening to this, where you listen to your podcast or on YouTube. Make sure you give us a like. And thank you very much for continuing to support this podcast.